This podcast is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers. All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words. Your weekly news briefing with Mark Powell and Mark Byer. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Powell. I'm joined by Mark Byer. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Coming up in this podcast, building sector woes, house prices, rental squeeze, office values, mining services deals, exploration boost, greenwashing and superannuation changes. Mark, first of all, uh, there's been a lot of conjecture around where the building industry is at. Yeah, look, lots of news this week concerning the residential building industry. Uh, Part of the news coming from uh, new data and part of it coming from some uh, front page stories about what's going on in the industry. Big focus on BGC. Now, like every residential building company, I think across the country, they'd had a boom in demand a couple of years ago when all the state and federal governments brought in COVID incentives um, and they've been battling to deal with that ever since. And timelines are blowing out, costs are going up. And they Um, made a loss last financial year. I think $42 million. In fact, we're both WA's two big residential building companies, BGC and ABN Group, both lost about $40 million. Yeah. and in case of ABN Group, first time they'd ever lost money for the year, financial year. Mm. So, you know, very telling. And lots of angry people out there who are still renting a house while they're waiting for their new home to be built. So they're squeezed financially and they're looking at, you know, timelines being extended out. Uh, some home buyers have actually taken action and there's a class action uh, being worked on against BGC um, on behalf of people who felt they were misled about, uh, you know, they signed up to get a house built at a, in a certain time at a certain price. Yep. And, you know, it's now very tough for the builders to deliver um, on what the expectations were early on. So there's a particular focus this week on how BGC has responded. And there was some uh, big front page headlines during the week suggesting that they'd suddenly stopped selling new houses so that they could try and cope with this backlog of incomplete, unfinished houses that are halfway through. Yep. Uh, our understanding is that the truth is a little more nuanced than that. Um, in fact, it was in June last year where the company started to significantly reduce sales uh, in order to deal with the high volume of work that they already had in place. Um, quote, we have continuously managed the sales pipeline to size it with our capacity to deliver. Mm. Now, I think you could argue they haven't quite hit that mark in terms of getting the right capacity, but they've certainly endeavoured to shift the focus away from new sales towards completion of existing builds. Yeah. And there's a particular issue that the builders have faced in this particular cycle, because of those uh, COVID incentives that came in, they all specified that work had to commence within a particular period of time. That's right, yeah. So all the new builds, the concrete slabs all had to be poured around about the same time. Then the bricks had to be laid around the same time. Then the roof timbers had to be put on around the same time. You're right, so you're ending up with this kind of bottleneck. 
in, in, in each particular each, trade. In each stage of, of, yeah, right. And I think in previous booms where there's been this sort of huge jump in the volume of activity, you know, there's still been a, a, a pressure on, on labour supply and availability of trades and so on, but it's been exaggerated this time around because mm. we've gone through those waves of different trades. So brickies, for instance, are now out there looking for work. Yeah, right. Whereas six months, 12 months ago, I'm not sure exactly when, you know. You couldn't find one. You couldn't find one. No money, yeah, got it. Yeah. So certainly a real problem. Um, the, in terms of uh, what's actually going on in the industry, new figures came out from the Bureau of Statistics on new house approvals. Uh, number of approvals for WA in the month of January, 1,050. That was about half the level that we had in two years ago, January 2021. Yeah, right. So that shows that the industry went from a very quiet period, absolutely spiked in 2020, 2021, and now it's falling away. Mm. So still total volume of work underway at the moment is high, but new sales have fallen away. And so in another six, 12 months' time, or 18 months certainly, going to be very quiet in residential building. So yet again, stimulus, you know, it all seems great, but, uh, you know, history shows that stimulus is, well, it's artificial and it has all sorts of long-term or medium-term impacts that are, you know, hard to predict. Uh, but maybe <laughs> you could have predicted this a little, a little more easily if you could see the numbers of houses, you know, being ordered. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, I guess building companies should know that too. Uh, they don't have to take the orders. But on the flip side, government's got to be a little bit careful about wanting to stimulate industries just to keep the economy going because now we go, now what are they going to do? Stimulate it again because it's fallen off? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, certainly, and the politics came to the fore as well during the week. Um, I mean, Mark McGowan was asked about the issues in the industry and his response was to say, um, well, it's a problem because the industry is so buoyant. There's so much going on. But, you know, as anyone in the industry will tell you, yes, we are busy, yep. but our margins are being killed. We're really battling to deliver. Um, so it, it wasn't... Um, I think the comments from the Premier were not really in tune with what the industry is going through and certainly with what home buyers are going through mm. or people building a new home are going through. Right, in the midst of construction. Um, but, you know... If we go back to the early stages of COVID, you know, pretty much everyone was calling for stimulus, um, but I agree with you. There was too much, too quickly, concentrated in a very short period of time. Yeah, and they don't seem to know when to stop it. It's the same. I mean, look at the, you know, the uh, building the education revolution during the GFC. Um, look at the stimulus for solar panels. Uh, you know, they all just seem to become these runaway trains that end up people getting ripped off and things not working and then businesses going broke and people losing their jobs. You know, I don't know why. I just There just needs to be an ability to, you know, m manage that in a more, I think your word, nuanced way is the way to go. And I think governments are good at ratcheting up on the demand side. It's the supply response is where the problems typically arise. Yeah. And that's the classic thing at the moment. Supply of skilled labour, supply of materials. That's the problem. Yeah, and uh, I didn't even get into pink bats. Now, there, there's a, you know, that involved deaths. 
So, you know, we've got to be careful. Right. Um, now, Mark, uh, well, house prices didn't move that much in the latest numbers, just staying with the residential building, really, in a way. Yep. We had the latest figures from CoreLogic. Uh, Perth house prices dipped very slightly, 0.1% in February, very similar to what happened across the country. Uh, but just looking further into those numbers, a few interesting insights. One, it's always good to remind people about where we sit in terms of median house values for the rest of the country. Uh, Perth, 561000 Now, that's the cheapest of all the mainland capitals. Hmm. Uh, well, mainland and Tassie, yeah. even cheaper than Hobart. Um, and about half Sydney. Sydney's median house price is still sitting north of a million dollars. I think from a, a national or East Coast perspective, you know, the big trend there is that the, the market has stabilised. There hasn't been a lot of movement. And the commentary from CoreLogic is that there's been a, a low supply of housing stock. Um, and that's been a big factor there. Uh, capital city listings across the country are down 17% from a year ago. But when you talk to Rewa and get the Western Australian data... It's quite a different picture. Mm. Uh, they talk about a fall in listings of only about 4%. Right. So as we've discussed many times, yep. the Perth market is not in sync with the rest of the country. Um, so look, if you look at the national figures, very modest growth in house values in Perth over the past 12 months. Yeah, but, but there's still supply. So if you want to buy a house, it's, you know, it's a more normal... Well, normal's not the right word, is it? It's just a, a more... Steady market, yeah, right. Um, and but the big, I guess, point of conjecture that everyone's worrying about is interest rates. You know, a the impact of rate rises that have already occurred, and b uh, how much further the Reserve Bank is going to go. Yeah, um, you know, they're a lot more um, hawkish in their commentary about inflation and the need to go hard on interest rates to try and sort of stamp down on inflation. So we've got another two. Possibly three. Some people have been talking about four further in increases in official interest rates. Uh, now, if that comes through, you know, going to be a big fallout in many industries, including uh, residential properties. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to just watch and see. Well, I think we've we've said enough about that over the last few weeks and months, um, where we sit with that. And then I guess you know, related there, Mark. There's also a rental squeeze. So what's the latest there? Look, that's particularly tight in Western Australia. Uh, the vacancy rate in Perth, currently 0.7%. Uh, if you talk to people in the industry, they say the normal level is around about 3%. Yep. So we're well below that. Um, median rent in Perth, $535 per week. Uh, that's up 19% over the past year. So, yeah, really tough if you're out there trying to find a place to rent. Yeah. Um, and, and this is in a market, right, where you've got the fed, uh, the state government trying to get, you know, going to the UK to try and get people to come and work here. Um, and then the other bit, which you've already mentioned, there's a whole lot of people who are waiting for houses to get built, and I assume that's in the possibly tens of thousands or so. Wait, they've got to rent, so they'll be impacting the market as well, right? Yeah, look, that was a point. Kath Hart from the Real Estate Institute at WA talked about that as one of the factors that's affecting what's going on here. Um, so a lot of people um, who are still renting a property while they wait for their new home to be completed. Yep. 
Um, and you're right, that's in certainly in the many thousands um, in, in that category. The other interesting statistic that REWA pulled out, they looked at the rental bond data and said that in the past two years, nearly 19,000 rental properties have been removed from the market. Mm-hmm. And they talk about that as being investors who've exited the market um, either to, you know, maybe they're taking advantage of um, long-awaited capital growth, um, well, the modest growth that we have had, yeah, um, or to use the properties for themselves or in response to rising interest rates. I was going to say most likely the latter there, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking, crikey, can I afford to have that extra property? But again, uh, well, okay, so they someone sells an investment property, it's still on the mark. I mean, it's still assuming someone's living in it. Uh, yeah, but it may not be available for rental. Right. Um, someone's acquired it to live in. Um, or, you know, examples I've come across where someone owns a rental property, um, their kids want a place to live. So yeah, they make right. it available for the kids, yep. which means the, the third-party tenants need to move out and find somewhere new. Yeah, um, and, and the other example which we saw a bit of in the GFC was people... Uh, sorry, not the GFC. During the pandemic... Uh, people coming back to WA and and occupying the house that they'd previously owned and rented whilst they were over, rented out whilst they were overseas. So you know I don't know how much of that's going on. Not commenting. Right. Um, all right. And look, just sticking again with property for a little bit longer. There were some really interesting comments from a major developer about office values. Yeah. Um, one of our journalists, Claire Tyrrell, went along to a property council lunch during the week. And one of the people on the panel was Jared O'Brien. He heads up a company called Silverleaf Investments. So they are, they're quite a significant player mm. around the state. Um, but mainly in retail, like shopping centres and the like, though, aren't they? That's kind of their core, isn't it? That's a, a large part of it, but yeah. it does go beyond that. I mean, to give you a few examples, um, a couple of year or two ago, they bought the Bull Creek Shopping Centre. Mm-hmm. Um, but also bought a office tower on St George's Terrace, 186 St George's Terrace. Yep. Um, the Manning Buildings, that's a um, an upgrade of one of the buildings on the uh, the pedestrian mall in Fremantle okay. on High Street there. Um, also doing a development down at Mandurah. Um, and also the Fremantle Wool Stores. Yes. Now, there's actually two Wool Stores buildings in Fremantle. Hesperia is doing the other one, but Silverleaf is looking to redevelop one of those wool stores buildings into residential apartments. Yeah, got it. Now, he was, Jerob was talking about what he called strong language. He said, we run a Ponzi scheme for officers in Perth. And the particular issue that he was talking about was the use of incentives to disguise the actual rent that mm. people are paying. Um, quote, we try and keep the face rents up uh, but you run down the bottom line because there are incentives of up to 68%. So that's a, a very large number. I hadn't, I hadn't thought they'd ever got to quite that level. Yeah, well, he'd uh, know. Uh, but basically this is where they'll say, look, the, the, the rental for this property is X, X hundred dollars per square metre, uh, but we'll give you a discount and we'll pay for the fit-out Mm. Um, and some other concessions. So the, the, the real amount you're paying is a lot less than that. And he's saying that it's not just in the office market, also in retail, where uh, 
developers are offering in fit-out incentives there as well. Mm. Okay, well, that makes sense. And I've certainly seen that, you know, in the restaurant business and bars. There's there's definitely been, you know, operators that pay for the fit-out so that someone can operate a boat, you know, someone well-known can operate a restaurant or whatever. I mean, office, again, that's very well-known. You know, obviously it's extremely opaque as to what those numbers are unless you're actually in the industry and seeing them and you're probably not sharing them because it's probably, as he points out, in no one's interest to share them. And I think that's Jared's point, that we're all kidding ourselves because yeah. everyone knows it's there but you don't really know the detail. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, he's making the point, that investors are actually investing on the headline rate, right? Like, you know, it's 600 square metres... $600 per square metre, it's this any square metres and it's a five-year lease arrangement, therefore the building is worth X. Um, and yet, if it's as much as that... And look, I was curious, Mark, I don't know if you've got the answer to this, when he says something like 68%, is he talking over the life of the lease or is he talking about on an annualised basis? Look, he didn't give that detail. Right. Because it could be first year, that makes a lot of sense. You, you do hear of people having... an perhaps not right in this market, but in previous markets, there's definitely been rent holidays and, you know, one year rent free for people to move into brand new buildings and the like. It's all quite common. So I hear what he's saying. Uh, I don't know how you change it um, other than, you know, journalists digging harder <laughs> and uh, putting more noses out of joint. Um, but it, it's a fair point to make. And I guess maybe, I don't know, do you have to have someone... You know, if it's an investor thing, are investors getting the truth? I think that's the question that's being asked here. And a lot of them are listed. There's listed property trusts. They're like, is that the right way to go about it? Yeah, and I think it also has a bearing on people going to the banks to borrow money. Yes. And then the banks are saying, well, okay, what's the uh, rental yield you're going to get on this development? Mm -hmm. And are the banks fully appraised of what the... Uh, true picture is mm -hmm. or are they also looking at headline rates yeah so yeah certainly a, a concern across the industry where it's it's it is opaque as you say and i don't think that serves anyone's interest particularly well no and then just a last word on this mark but having said that at some point you know we had occupancy rates way down we had you know terrible issues around this you know with around the pandemic and even prior to that and yet we haven't seen a collapse in values of property you know like do you know what I mean? Like, uh, the people who are buying these buildings typically know the score and they know how it works. So, you know, I'm sort of curious around, you know, you could say it's a Ponzi scheme, but, you know, is it really that people know that's the asset and they'll be able to sell it in 10 years' time for a bit more than what they bought it for and what's wrong with that? So, intriguing. At Pragma Lawyers, we help our clients avoid and resolve legal disputes so they can focus on what's important. We do this by thinking outside the square to advance and protect our clients' interests in innovative and cost-effective ways. Based in Subiaco, our specialist lawyers assist in all aspects of business law, including dispute resolution and litigation, insolvency and restructuring, employment and industrial relations, property and business transactions. To find out why Australasian Lawyer Magazine awarded us the title of Top Boutique Law Firm 2022, visit pragma.law today. All right, um, now change of subject. Mark, you wrote about an interesting mining services deal. MTI Group, they're a privately owned business out in Wangara. Uh, 
they provide or they develop the materials that are used in drilling, drilling and blasting. Um, a great little Perth success story. Uh, recently sold for $125 million. Mm. Um, so a nice return there for investors. A good example of a number of things. Uh, one is that expertise in mining services that we have in Western Australia that gets exported around the world. Yep. Um, this company's got operations globally um, and you know, a lot of the big players, BHP, Anglo-American, Newmont, Glencore, Vale, you know, these are the kind of clients they've got. So you know, absolutely world-class clients. They've had the capacity, and I've talked about this more in the context, I guess, of the tech sector, but it's similar in mining services, where we incubate and build up really good businesses up to a point. Yep. In this case, they've had backing from a couple of local private equity firms. Um, back in 2013, Bankshire Capital invested in MTI and then took them up to a certain level. Uh, five years later, another group, Viburnum, run out of Netherlands. Uh, they've got a really interesting portfolio of, of businesses in that sort of mining and resources um, services companies. Yep. Uh, they came in, bought 90%, and they've taken them from around that you know, 30, 40 mil valuation up to north of 100 mil. Challenge here is, you say, okay, who's going to be the long-term owner? Some of these businesses consider an IPO, but their earnings can be a bit volatile, and you know, generally those deals don't get done or, or to a limited degree. But there seems to be much more appetite for businesses of this kind from big international firms. Now, yep. in this case, um, MTI has been bought by a company called NAX. Now, they're owned by a major player in Chile. Um, and we've seen quite a few other cases like this that just in the past two years. Uh, Micromine, Perth-founded mining software business, bought by a US firm. Um, Axis Mining Technology, out in Canningvale, been bought by Orica, which is an Australian company, but global. Uh, Minivare, another Perth company, Kinetic Logging Services. These are all mining services, mining technology, all been sold to international players. Yep. And I think in all those cases, you know, well north of $100 million. So, yeah, look, it comes back to that, uh, you know, this, this is a, an expression we've used many times in business news uh, in the past 20, 25 years, uh, branch economy. You know, and it was a real, you know, I remember it was such a big issue in the, in the late 90s when all those branded businesses that we had were, were disappearing and being bought by national players, mainly in that context. Um, fast forward to this period, and now you're seeing international players, mining services, and for one reason or another, there are companies here that do do the roll-ups and expansions, but generally speaking, it's the opposite way. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's 100 million plus washing around, mainly in Western Australian hands as a result. Uh, the employees are still here and they need to be here because this is where the expertise is and this is where the action is. Um, so it's a good thing, but it is, you know, it's always that disappointing bit that we don't see more of those companies become, you know, how can a Chilean company do it when a West Australian company can't do it? That's the disappointing thing, right? 
Interesting thing around Viburnum, uh, really interesting business. They've got about a billion dollars in funds under management. And split, and I've, you know, forgive me, Mark, I can't remember, but it's sort of 60-40. I think it's 40% enlisted and 60% in unlisted, but it could very well be the other way around. Um, Craig Coleman runs the the listed, where they invest in listed companies, public companies, and Marshall Allen sort of runs aside the business where they, they're in unlisted. And, and Marshall Allen's been saying for a couple of years, they're such a big believers in mining services and the opportunities there and and here's a good example of you know where the rubber hits the road on that fact and one last little point the chief executive of mti group and the person who's built it up over about 15 years nick bodley a 40 under 40 winner uh-huh. and i know you're in the middle of judging the current 40 under 40 awards yep so yeah you know, another um, person that we can sort of look at as a good pick in prior years absolutely and then we'll watch what he does next with his earnings and how long he's locked in and what his role is in the business, which is always pretty fascinating in these uh, circumstances. Um, now, Mark, staying at a bit on the mining side, December raisings for exploration were the highest. Uh, well, B- this is from BDO data, so the highest since they've been collecting the data and reporting on it in 2013. So what's driving it? Yeah, look, um, this is every quarter. Uh, BDO sort of adds up the numbers from all the listed exploration companies um, on the ASX. $3 billion was the amount that was raised in the December quarter. Mm. Um, that was spread across, I think, 50-odd companies. And the, uh, a few of the big areas, gold, rare earths, lithium. Um, Sharif Andraws, who heads up, uh, one of the senior people at BDO in their corporate finance area and does a lot of advising on the mining side. You know, he sees them as big, um, as areas where there'll be continued strong demand yep. um, because these are the commodities that the world needs. Well, gold, I guess, is a, a store of value, um, but lithium and rare earths, um, you know, key ingredients that the world needs. Yep. And he says um, the mines that the world will need uh, don't exist at the moment. That's right. Hence, a lot of money being thrown into the exploration stage, uh, and which is which is our version of R and D, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and risk capital. The people are prepared to um, have a punt. And look, um, gold was very strong just in the quarter, raised nearly four hundred million. Uh, De Grey Mining and Bellevue Gold, two Perth companies that featured prominently there. Uh, rare earths. Uh, a good example there was Hastings Technology Metals. Um, you know, I think a good example about a company looking to commercialise something in a fairly high-risk area, yep. um, but still able to attract very significant investor support. Um, and then another good example out of Perth, Global Lithium. Uh, they're a, um, an, an explorer. They've got a few very promising projects, had a lot of support from investors um, who see them as potentially, you know, one of the next big lithium miners. Um, so, look, you know, really encouraging, I guess, to see um, the amount of support that's in there. Uh, there's a little bit of government incentive for exploration spending, but fundamentally it's private investors mm. tipping money into this area. Um, all excited. You know, it's our version of Silicon Valley. That's uh, right. You tip your money into a a portfolio of explorers and you hope that one, maybe two of them comes off 
and delivers you that really big return. Yeah, no, exactly. And of course, it comes with that risk that, you know, it's like startups. They go drilling somewhere and they spend millions of dollars on drilling and they might not find what they think they're going to get. So Yep. And then, so that's one side is you know, the amount raised in the quarter. That tends to jump around a fair bit. And then the other side is the amount spent per quarter, yep. which is more, it's much steadier. Uh, December quarter figure was $930 million. So, you know, a lot of money being spent mm. on exploration for minerals um, around the country. Yep. Um, not too many drill rigs lying, laying idle, I take it. Uh, no, certainly not. Um, and interestingly, within that, you know, those commodities like gold, lithium, rare earths feature in spend, but also coal and oil and gas. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of debate, and we're going to come to this topic in a moment, about sustainability and environmental future. Yes. Um, but in the here and now, um, it's still money important. talks. It's yeah. still very important. Yep, yep. All right, well, let's shift to that, Mark. Uh, there has been a bit of regulatory activity around so-called green washing. Yeah, and look, so um, ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, it's taken court action against Mercer Superannuation. Um, so they have a big you know, corporate super fund. And this is the first occasion where ASIC has taken... Sorry, ASIC's talked a lot about greenwashing, mm. basically people being misleading in their claims about their environmental credentials. Yes. But this is the first time they've taken anyone to court regarding their alleged greenwashing conduct. But it's also what I found really fascinating, I think when you and I were discussing this, yeah. about what constitutes greenwashing. Yeah, it's a bit broader than climate stuff. It certainly is. Um, about any financial product or investment strategy in this context that is supposed to be environmentally friendly, sustainable or ethical. Yeah. Now, in the case of Mercer, they invested in things like Heineken and Carlsberg, so alcohol, um, treasury wine estates, alcohol again, but also gaming, aristocrat leisure, crown resorts, Tabcorp, these are all ASX companies. Yes. Now, they'd said to their investors... Um, Apparently, well, yes. we're not going to invest in those industries, but they chose to. Which so is a little odd, right? It is, <laughs> and that's the premise for ASIC's court action. Yeah. Um, but certainly I hadn't thought about those sorts of things coming under the uh, that umbrella of greenwashing. No, and I, you know, I find this entirely confusing, Mark, because to me, greenwashing is where someone is investing you know, someone says they've got these environmental credentials, which they don't have, right? So we're, invent we're investing in X, Y, Z company that, uh, you know, is reducing its emissions by d and doing this new technology or something like that, and, and, and they're not really doing it, if that makes sense. That, that's, you know, it, and we're watching, aren't we? We watch all these companies that say they're doing, you know, all these efforts to reduce emissions or they're around Indigenous stuff, they're doing this, and we find every now and then that, well, they're not actually really doing it. And to me, in the first instance, that's what greenwashing is all about. And I guess at Superfund level, I assume, what does that mean, that they're not paying attention to the company, or they're, they're investing in companies that are being misleading and they don't care? I'm not quite sure. You know, did, in Mercer's is a very unusual thing. It's In that example, it said it wouldn't invest in 
the types of companies that it did. I mean, that's is that greenwashing? That to me is just it's a it's much more basic than that. Mm. It seems to me, you know. Yep. But look, this is certainly a, a broad issue uh, because another regulator, the ACCC, which is sort of the consumer watchdog, they're also taking action in this regard. They did a survey of about 250 businesses and evaluated the claims that they're making and found that 57% of them uh, made what they called false or misleading claims about their environmental credentials. Right. So the ACCC is going to go back to those companies and say, well, you're making these claims, back it up. Yes. Um, they're saying, you know, the obligation then you need some reliable scientific report or you need transparent information on your supply chain to prove that there's no slavery in your supply chain, for instance. Right. Or you need some sort of reputable third-party certification, um, which to me makes sense. If you're going to go out there and say how clean and green you are, well, you should be back, able to back it, up. it up. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that makes in that. I mean, I, to me, that is greenwashing. And I, well, again. <laughs> When it's involving the environment, it's greenwashing. I'm not quite sure how it's greenwashing when it involves, you know, slavery, for instance. I mean, it, that's just a different thing than than the environment, which is what we talk about when we talk about green, don't we? So it's still an issue, but just yeah. not a green issue. Well, I'm just, you know, is the terminology misleading in the first place that the regulator's using? I mean, curious. And then, and that takes us back to that Mercer example uh, again. That they've said they're going to have an ethical fund, and those things are very subjective, as we know. But nevertheless, I still don't see how investing in a brewery has got anything to do with greenwashing. I really don't. No, I, I tend to agree with you on that. <laughs> yep. Um, and look, also a final point for me here: a lot of focus, obviously, on. Uh, you know, mining and resources and petroleum companies in, in whenever these topics come up for debate. But this ACCC survey, the particular focus for them was on companies in the cosmetics industry, clothing, yeah, food right. and drinks. Right, which so, make all sorts of claims to the consumer on their bottle or their yeah, jar yeah, 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 or their tube. All right, uh, now finally, Mark, uh, superannuation was the big subject nationally. Uh, we're not going to go into great depth on this, but I thought it was, we just couldn't really avoid it. It's too important. Yep. So, uh, yeah, federal government came out during the week and confirmed that they were going to tighten up tax concessions on superannuation, uh, in particular reducing the concessionality for people with $3 million or more in their super fund. And I guess two parts to this, the politics of it, and the policy. Yeah. Um, now, I think it revealed that the Prime Minister got caught out because he'd made a pretty black and white promise before the election that he wasn't going to make changes in superannuation. Uh, clearly, he has. So, he rash before the election. You understand why people make these sweeping promises, but, you know, you, you tie your hands if you make those sorts of promises. Yep. And now he's had to break the promise. Um, separately from that, is it good policy? Well, I guess if you come from the premise that the purpose of providing tax breaks for super is to ensure that people have a financially secure retirement, then you can well argue, well, if you've got three mil in your super fund, you're set up for retirement. Yep. 
um, because a person with that much money, they're going to own their house already. Um, that should be plenty to see people with a comfortable retirement. If they want more than that, that's their choice, uh, but they don't need tax breaks to set themselves up for retirement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the essence of this argument. Uh, and I think, if I remember rightly, there was a cap originally and then that got changed in the 2000s by... I'm sure that uh, the Liberal government at the time under Howard changed that and basically unleashed it. So I guess Labor could argue it's bringing it back to how it was in some form. But I just... it's a Look, it's a real, let's just take the politics first of all. It is... You've, you've summarised it really well. There's a by-election coming up, which I think will be a really... In, in, a, in a seat where I think there's quite a lot of... Uh, I forget the name of the seat, but there's quite there'll be quite a lot of these, uh, you know, people with three million dollars or more in that seat, or people who are close to that. This is after Alan Tudge retired. Yeah, yep. so I think that's a really interesting test, and maybe from a government's perspective, you kind of expect to get slapped around a by-election anyway. So maybe here, let's just test the water and see if it really matters. Um, but I think there is a fear factor there because they haven't indexed it, which is the first thing that I that I think is is going to plague them why would you do that because you've set this boundary at three million saying well everything above that as you just pointed out people can look after themselves but we're going to have if they don't index it it's just going to be a fight uh, you know in every five years or every you know within five years that will represent a lower number and a lot more people will be captured and that is clearly the intention i would suggest start with something political politically palatable potentially in the hope that actually in real terms you get them, you get much greater traction in terms of, you know, money. But the other debate part of this is, A, they're going to save $2 billion. You know, I know it's a decent number, but it doesn't even buy a submarine, you know. I mean, it's seriously, it's, it, it's very small for the political fight they're causing. Uh, and they're going on about the, the, the tax concessions to superannua- superannuation, you know, fund holders is greater now than the pension payout. Well, isn't that the point of it? <laughs> you know, I thought we were we were providing, you know, making people and, infor- and forcing people to put money into super on the basis that that would reduce the burden on, on the pension, which, so naturally you'd think pension would go down. And then just the final thing, Mark, here, there's another anomaly out there that I think is much more important is that people are taking their superannuation, getting their superannuation, in lump sum and getting rid of it, dispersing it, and then going on the pension anyway. Now, that, to me, is a much greater rort, if you want to use the word, than, you know, I don't see why you should get a tax concession to go and give your money away and go back on and go on to the pension, other than in cases of, you know, you know, someone's put it all in some stupid investment, which people do, and, you know, there are, there are, re- there are certain reasons why, you know, someone might need to go on the pension after they've had superannuation payout, but... I don't know that the government's picking the right end of the, the league ladder here. Anyway, they picked it for political reasons. Well, that's enough on that one, unless you've got anything more you want to say. No, you're shaking your head. All right, well, thanks, Mark. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for listening. The latest business news, delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This episode is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers.